morning, everyone. So last week, I was helping out in the kids' room, in the ready-to-learn room, and as I was walking down the hallway to go to the room with the kids, um, I asked Jen uh, Oshman, thank God she was there, I would have been totally lost without her, I asked Jen, what uh, passage are we teaching the kids today? And she said, Genesis 22. And I said, oh, that's Abraham sacrificing Isaac. That's heard this story a million times, just put it on autopilot, nothing really left for me to learn, just go out and do your thing. So we got into the kids' room, and Jen started to read the story, and I kind of started to have my eyes glaze over and tune out and just kind of wait for the story to be over. But when Jen got to the part of the story where God told Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac, I remember hearing Brendan Finke, little seven, eight-year-old kid, I don't know, when we got to that part in the story, I heard him say, oh no, that's horrible. And that was just a really humbling moment for me. You know, you've got the guy who's studied this passage, preached this passage, I know this passage, I've heard it a hundred times, I know it backwards and forwards, I can talk about this thing with my eyes closed. And then you had this seven-year-old kid who heard it a lot better than I did. Sometimes our biggest obstacle when it comes to growing in our knowledge of Scripture and in our understanding of the Gospel is our familiarity with Scripture and with the Gospel. Because we are already so familiar with it, because we have heard it so many times, we think that there's nothing else for me here. There's nothing new that I can learn. There's nothing that I can see in a fresh, new way. This week, we're going to be in John chapter 19, if you want to go ahead and turn there with me. John 19. And this passage is all about the crucifixion, the death, and the burial of Jesus. And so in a sense, if, if you're at any church that is worth its salt, then that church is going to preach Christ and him crucified every single week. And so in a sense, this is a text and a sermon that we hear every single week. But let me ask you to not make the same mistake that I made last week. Don't come to this text thinking that you know everything about it. Don't come assuming that there is nothing left here for you to learn. Be willing to let the Lord teach you something new. And, and even if it's not something new that you learn, maybe it's an old thing that you have heard a hundred times, but just be willing to see it and hear an old thing in a fresh, new way. And so just like last week, um, there's a lot of ground to cover. You know, it's, um, there's not like one big teaching moment. There's not, you know, one, uh, you know, crucial conversation that we're just going to, you know, pin down on one small portion. We're going to cover a lot. And so just kind of like last week, we're just going to immerse ourselves in this story and just kind of almost like watching a, a, a video in slow motion, just kind of take it frame by frame by frame and immerse ourselves in the, the crucifixion and the death and the burial of Jesus and let our hearts uh, just be transformed by the gospel and Jesus' love for us. So picking up in John chapter 19, starting in verse 17, uh, last week we saw that Pilate and Jesus were facing off. We had two kingdoms, two kings and two kingdoms going to battle. And then in verse 17 we read, They took Jesus and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. 
There they crucified him, and him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So just to give you a sense of what Jesus is feeling and going through right now, um, we know that at this point Jesus uh, hasn't slept in a really long time. So he was up praying the night before, praying for himself, praying for his disciples, praying for us. He was being shuffled back and forth between Pilate and the Jews and chief priests, so he didn't get a wink of sleep. And, you know, so imagine what it feels like when you didn't sleep the night before. You're just groggy, you're cranky, you're angry at everyone. And while he was praying, he prayed so intensely, he was under so much emotional um, duress that Luke's account tells us that he bled blood. He was under such emotional distress that he bled blood. I, I think the medical term is uh, hematidrosis, and it's where uh, your capillaries are just under so much stress that they just exude blood, and it makes your, your skin just extremely, extremely sensitive. You know, I, I, I guess a good way to put it would be you could probably feel your clothes touching you, that you're, it just everything hurts. You're just very aware of yourself. So he was tired, he was aware of everything, and he was beaten. He just had, you know, we're not sure exactly what kind of beating Jesus went through, but his back was definitely bruised, or, you know, he had flesh ripped off. We're not sure exactly how severe it was, but he was beaten to a pulp, and then he was forced to carry a 100-pound crossbeam to his death, his own uh, method of, of dying. He had to carry it to actually kill himself. And then he had nails pierced through his wrist and pierced through his ankles. Like, just think about it. The, the, the nerves that Jesus himself spoke into existence, they worked perfectly. And pain just radiated throughout his entire body. Crucifixion could last for days. There are a lot of ways that you could die from crucifixion. Um, it could be from uh, sepsis where your wounds get infected. Like those, that wasn't a sterile nail and a sterile cross that they used. They were reused over and over and over again. And so if you're up there for days, you know, seven, eight days, like you can die from your wounds getting infected. You could die from dehydration or for animals coming and tearing you apart. But the, the most common way that crucifixion victims would die was from asphyxiation. And because their arms were stretched out like this, because of the, the hyperextension of their chest cavity, they, they wouldn't be able to breathe. Their, their body weight would drag them down so they wouldn't be able to breathe. And so in order to catch a breath, they would have to, to push up on their, their nail-pierced ankles and try and draw their chest up to get a breath. And, and it was exhausting. And eventually, like, your, your, your arms and your legs are going to give out from trying to pull yourself up. And so it's just this, it's a matter of time, and you always have to choose, do I want to be able to breathe, or do I want to feel excruciating pain throughout my entire body? It, it was just, the Romans had perfected torture, and, and this was a torturous death. It was meant to be prolonged, and it was meant to be horrific. We actually get our word excruciating from crucifixion, literally out of crucifixion. So Jesus is just going through just almost unimaginable physical pain right now. And then Pilate wants to add insult to injury. On top of the physical pain, he adds some additional emotional pain and shame. And 
he writes a sign to mock Jesus. And over Jesus, he has a sign put up that says, Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, King of the Jews. And without realizing it, Pilate is preaching one of the best sermons of all time. So last week, after he had questioned Jesus, he brought Jesus out before the crowd, and he said, I find no fault in this man. Yeah, that's really good, Pilate. I I know you don't know what you're saying, but this man is completely innocent. He has never sinned once. He is perfect. He is spotless. There is no fault in him. It's a good start. And then he questions him again, and he brings Jesus out, and he says, Behold the man. Well, that's great incarnation theology. It sounds like Pilate has read John 1, 1, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This God is become man. When he says, behold, he says it twice. It sounds like he's joining John the Baptist. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then again, Pilate says, behold the king. He is a man, but he's not just any man. He is a king. He, he meant it mockingly in saying, behold the king. And with the sign that he wrote, he meant it mockingly. But God was using his mockery to preach a fantastic sermon. Pilate was being used by God to accomplish God's own purposes. And this is a a huge theme. It's something that we have to understand when it comes to the cross. That mankind and Pilate and the soldiers and the Jewish crowds and our sin that put him there, man is 100% responsible for what happened to Jesus. Okay, if you, if you go to the book of Acts and you read Peter's words, every time that Peter references Jesus, he can't help but add on, Jesus, whom you crucified. Jesus, whom you crucified. So man is 100% responsible. Man crucified Jesus. And, and, and we know Satan was involved. Satan has been trying to get at God since, since the Garden of Eden, since Genesis 3. We know that Satan seduced Judas. He, he turned Judas' heart against Jesus, and was, so he would sell him out for 30 pieces of silver. And, and at the cross, it looked like Satan had won. I mean, he just killed Jesus, the Son of God. It looked like Satan had won. So man and Satan were 100% involved in killing Jesus. And while it is 100% true that man and Satan killed Jesus, it is also 100% true that it was God's will For Jesus to die like that. Nothing that happened happened outside of God's purposes. There's a phrase that comes up through uh, this crucifixion narrative, and it comes up several times, and it says, uh, So that the scriptures might be fulfilled. We We saw it last week as Jesus was being shuffled back and forth that this was to fulfill the scripture. It comes up again in verse 24 as Jesus' garment is taken off of him and as it's bed on, that this happened so that Scripture might be fulfilled. It comes up again in verse 28 when Jesus said, I thirst. That's a, a quote from the Old Testament. And Jesus was doing that so that Scripture might be fulfilled. And so we always have questions about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Which one wins out? Which one is true? And they are never both more on display than at the cross. They are both 100% true. There is no contradiction in them according 
to Scripture. And that is something that we have to know, that we are still responsible for our sin and the weight of it, but God is still sovereign and can take care of it and deal with it. And Pilate was being used by God to preach a great sermon and to put the glory of Jesus on display. A few weeks ago, we were looking at Jesus' prayer in John 17. And in the first few verses of that prayer, Jesus prayed for himself to be glorified in what was about to happen. For, um, for praise and for weight and for serious adoration and for people to take a long, hard look and to see God at the crucifixion. And so at the crucifixion, we see all of God. God is never more public and never more on display than at the cross. We see his love and that he sent us his son to die for us. We see his justice and that sin cannot go unpunished and in his holiness he has to punish sin. We see his wisdom in using a, a homeless, crucified man to be the king of the world and to, to turn everything on its head. And so God is never more on display than at the cross. And in verses 23 and 24, the, the soldiers, again, they, they didn't understand the irony of it, but they joined in on the action. They stripped Jesus of his clothes and put him naked on a cross. Displayed for all to see, nothing was held back. And so it's true that on like a spiritual side, God was on display, but even also just on a very physical side, everything was on display. Like I'm up here now and you can see me, but thankfully you can't see all of me, okay? But, but the great irony and, and the great tragedy of what these soldiers did to Jesus and just adding to his shame and humility is that they had a front row seat to the greatest display of the glory of God in history. They actually partook in it. They could see Jesus. They could touch Jesus. They could see and touch their salvation. They were actually accomplishing their own salvation and making a way and killing Jesus, but they missed it. They were blind and they didn't have eyes to see. And as he was suffering on the cross, we read in verse 25 that standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, most likely John, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his house. So before Jesus started his public ministry, he was most likely the breadwinner for his family. He took care of his mother financially. And so when he's hanging on the cross and he sees his mother walk up, um, he knows that widows in that society um, had no social standing. They, they were completely reliant on somebody else. And so in that language that he used of behold uh, your son and behold your mother, he was tapping into adoption language, some legal adoption language from that age, and he was caring for his mother. So, so just think about that. Jesus is kind of busy right now. He is going through literal hell. 
This is the, the moment that he came to earth for. And, and he's tired, he's beaten, he is dying. The life is just pouring out of him. But then when he sees his mother, he takes care of her. On just a very physical, a very practical level, he wanted his mother to be taken care of. So just let that soften your heart this week. No, no matter what you're going through, God is not too busy for you. If Jesus can take care of his mother on a very practical level with the last breath that he last breaths that he has, he's not too busy for you. But why did he have to say woman like that? Woman. I, I feel like uh, everybody's just going to get in trouble here. This isn't good. Well, in, in Greek, um, that word woman doesn't have the same connotation that it does in English. It's not like, you know, woman, go make me a sandwich or anything like that. Um, yeah, so the, the tone is kind of difficult to grasp. It's not derogatory. It's not mean. But it's also not casual or intimate. So when Jesus saw his, his mother, he's not like, oh, hey, mom, what's up? Uh, maybe the best equivalent English is ma'am. So it still shows friendship and relationship, but it, it keeps a distance. I'm not going to call you by your first name. It's just kind of, you know, ma'am. I, I think you could even go so far as to say that Jesus was being business professional right now, which he was. Jesus was at work right now. It might seem odd, but Jesus was working at the cross. God had sent him to earth with a mission to accomplish God's purposes, to inaugurate the kingdom, and to redeem a people. And that entire mission hinged on Jesus going to the cross. This was the most important step of the job. And so Jesus is at work. And that word for woman, it's popped up elsewhere in John. It showed up in chapter 2 at the wedding at Canaan where Jesus just provided an overabundance of wine and joy. And at the wedding, at the party, the wine ran out. And so Mary ran up to Jesus and says, Jesus, you know, do something. And Jesus said, woman, ma'am, what, what does this have to do with me? For my hour has not yet come. So Mary wanted Jesus to fix everything. Mary wanted Jesus to inaugurate the kingdom now. She wanted heaven on earth right now, right then, at that hour. But Jesus says, it is not my hour. And so I'm not going to, you know, full-blown kingdom. I'm not going to inaugurate it now. I'm just going to do a sign. And so he filled up 150, 180 gallons of really, really good wine. And all that was meant to do was to be a, a foretaste, an appetizer, a, a sign pointing to the better, more fulfilling kingdom of God. And so now I want us to compare the wine, the good wine of John chapter 2 with the wine that J Jesus drank here in chapter 19. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So it's pretty obvious John wants us to know exactly what kind of wine this is. 
This is not the wine back in John chapter 2. This is not the good, sweet wine. This wine is bitter, it is sour, and it is very hard to drink. Uh, The night before he died, we know from Jesus' prayer that he prayed um, that the cup that the Father would give him, he prayed that that cup might pass from him. And a lot of times I think we assume that the cup that Jesus is referring to is the physical pain that he is going to experience the next day. And uh, I I don't think that's quite right. I I think to, to think about the physical pain as to be what Jesus prayed against the night before he died would be to over-glorify the gruesomeness and the physicality of what was about to happen. And so when Jesus prayed, uh, let this cup pass, what he was doing is he was picking up on some Old Testament language about a cup. And in the Old Testament, a cup often referred to God's justice and God's wrath. Psalm 25 says, for in the hand, I'm sorry, Psalm 75, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. And in Jeremiah 25, the Lord says, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. So that's what Jesus was praying for the night before he died. That if at all possible, that he would not have to drink the cup of wrath and justice that God had reserved for sinners. Because in in those six or so hours that he was on the cross, God condensed an eternity's amount of wrath and justice, and he condensed it and he poured it all out onto Jesus as he was on the cross, and he suffered like no one has ever suffered. I think Charles Spurgeon deserves quotation at length here. Spurgeon said, In one tremendous drought of love, leaving not so much as a single drop of wormwood or gall or any of his people to drink, the whole of this tremendous debt was put upon his shoulders. The whole weight of the sins of all his people was placed upon him. At one point he seemed to stagger under it. Father, if it is possible... But then he stood upright. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. The whole of the punishment of his his people was distilled into one cup. No mortal lip, lip might give it so much as a solitary sip. When he put it to his own lips, it was so bitter that he well nigh spurred it. Let this cup pass from me. But his love for his people was so strong that he took the cup in both his hands and at one tremendous drought of love, he drank damnation dry for all his people. He drank it all, he endured it all, he suffered it all, so that now forever there are no flames of hell, no racks of torment, and no eternal woes for them. Jesus has suffered all that they ought to have suffered, and they must and they shall go free. And having accomplished the work that he came to do, Jesus uttered, it is finished, and he died. Now, it could take crucifixion victims days to die, and because tomorrow was the Sabbath, the Jews asked if Jesus' body would be taken down. And if a victim wasn't dead yet, then what a lot of the Roman soldiers would do is they would break their legs so that they could no longer push up and get air. And so with their legs broken, they would die from asphyxiation pretty quickly. 
But when they got to Jesus, they saw that they were pretty sure he was already dead. So just, uh, I guess it was an easier way to make sure. They took a spear and they stabbed him in the side. And some blood and some water came out. And I asked the medical students, like physically and medically, what was going wrong. And they said a lot of big words that I didn't understand. Um, and so there are you know, different ideas of you know, the pericardial sac, which surrounds the heart, could have filled with fluid when you die. Or the lungs, because they had been beaten and torn apart so much, were you know, just diffusing water. And that's how the mixture of blood and water got there. I don't know. But the point is, Jesus was already dead. And it was a very brutal way to die. And, and the water and the blood attest to that. And, and when I just think about, you know, his wrists and his uh, ankles being nailed and about his side being pierced and his, his throat, uh, you know, being parched and his back being beaten and his beard just being ripped from his face, I just, I can't help but think back to John 1. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this is obviously a very physical, a very fleshy, a very gruesome story. And, and while we don't want to overemphasize it, I think we, we should give it its proper place. And so as gruesome and as horrific as the crucifixion story is, when, when I just read about the physicality of it, I am so glad that it's in there. Because here's the thing, if, if God did not come to us as a man in Jesus, then you and I have absolutely no hope for salvation. So like Mark said last week, this time of year was the high point of the Jewish calendar. And so Jews from all over would gather on Jerusalem and there they would uh, sacrifice you know, bulls and rams and, and goats and doves and, and blood would just be pouring everywhere. And the reason that that sacrificial system was in place was to remind Israel of their sin and that uh, payment had to be made. But Hebrews 9 is very clear that the blood of goats and bulls can never save anyone. All right, so, so if this sacrificial system is in place, but it can't save anybody, why, why is it even there? All it was meant to do was, again, to be a sign, to be a type, to be a pointer to the final sacrifice, the real sacrifice, to the one whose blood could save us. Okay, it's pretty simple. Goat's blood can't save a human. They, the conversion rate just doesn't work. It's like water and oil. They just don't mix. It had to be a man that died for us. And so when we come across that physicality, of the fleshness and the humanness of God in this passage, we know that our salvation is on the line. And we should rejoice that there was an incarnate God on the cross. God became man, and that there has been human flesh and human blood that has been broken and shed for you. And so once he died, his body was taken down, and two people volunteered to take care of his body. We read in verses 38 and 39 that it was Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. So if you've been with us as we've been going through John, then Nicodemus should sound pretty familiar to you by now. He's made a few cameos up to this point. He showed up in John chapter 3 where he had a moonlit Q&A with Jesus. And Jesus said that he had to be 
born again in order to have salvation. He just, Nicodemus just didn't really get it. And he showed up in uh, John 7 where the authorities, they wanted to arrest Jesus. And Nicodemus wasn't all the way in yet. You know, he, he still belonged, his primary allegiance to the Pharisees, but he snuck, stuck his neck out a little bit like, no, we, we need to give him a fair trial. Our law said we have to give him a fair trial. And then here in chapter 19, he's made the jump. He went from being curious to slightly committed to being willing to be identified with a crucified Savior to lose all social standing, to put everything on the line to be identified with Jesus. And I just think this is really cool that over the course of his gospel, John has primarily been telling us a story of Jesus. But along the way, we also learn the story of Nicodemus. Because Jesus' story is the only story big enough and true enough to account for and transform all of our smaller stories. It's like when Jesus was caring for his mom on the cross, he was busy at that time. He was writing the the biggest, most grandest story uh, that, that is humanly conceivable, but he still stopped and came out of the big meta story, big meta narrative, and took care of his mother. And in the same way, just as, as you trace Jesus' story from beginning to end, you see Nicodemus following along, and you see him make his steps and make the progression of coming to faith. So again, if, if Jesus can save Mary as he's on the cross, and if he can save uh, Nicodemus in his death, he can save anyone. Again, he's not too busy. Just look to him and come to him and take your time. It can be a journey. And notice where Joseph and Nicodemus laid Jesus. The tomb that they placed him in was in a garden. And this might just be my biblical imagination getting the best of me, but I can't help but think back to Genesis 3 to another garden, to the Garden of Eden, where sin first entered the world and where mankind and all of the earth was placed under a curse. And Right after man sinned, God said that he would send a seed, a promised one, a savior, a redeemer. And that redeemer would crush the head of the serpent. He would reverse the curse. He would undo everything that had been done. And so I I just can't help but notice that where sin entered the world in creation, it seems like Jesus goes back to another garden to begin a new creation. And the imagery is just so rich because what happens to things that are put into a ground in a garden? They rise. And they come back. But you're going to have to come back next week to hear that part of the story. So until then, until next Sunday, as you go about your week, I only have one take-home application for you. And I'm going to openly plagiarize Pilate here. I, I really do think Pilate preached a great sermon. He he just didn't know it. So I'm going to try and redeem Pilate's words for us this week. And so in the words of Pilate, in reference to Jesus, behold the man. Behold the incarnate God, Jesus Christ made man, the very earthly, physical, fleshly man who took on our flesh just to have that flesh ripped apart in order to secure your salvation.
So behold the man, but also know that he's not just a man. Also behold your king. The king who left his throne in heaven, who left the praises of all the heavenly hosts that he deserved, who left his throne and was born in a manger, and who mockingly had a crown of thorns and a purple robe put on him. He doesn't look like much of a king right now. He looks dead. But remember that God uses the weak things in this world to shame the strong and the foolish things in this world to shame the wise. Christ has drunk every drop of damnation that his disciples deserve, that we deserve, and he has made a way for us to be reconciled to God. And so we feasted a lot this week on food. Now just feast your eyes on this crucified king. Would you pray with me? Lord, would you, by your spirit, give us eyes to see the crucified Jesus. Help us to see your eternal plan of redemption at the cross. Help us to see our sin, the weight of it, and what we deserved. And help us to see the love that Jesus has for us. Would you make many sons and daughters out of people in this room by bringing them to the cross? Praise in Jesus' name. Amen.